Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. This edition of the Toronto International Film Festival was slightly pared down from last year. There were only 255 features. To help navigate the festival, which is still going on, by the way, I assembled five fellow critics. Adam Naiman, a writer for CinemaScope. Michael Koreski, editorial director at Film Society of Lincoln Center. Eric Hines, associate curator of film at the Museum of the Moving Image and longtime contributor to Film Comment. Nick Pinkerton, regular contributor at Film Comment and sundry other publications. And Elisa Ma, the head of programming at Metrograph. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you all for joining me on this beautiful fall evening at the Toronto International Film Festival. So I thought we could just start by talking about films that at least three of us have seen. Why don't we start with Call Me By Your Name? Yeah, I saw that before the festival, but not as early as it premiered. Obviously, it showed at Sundance. And I was very suspicious and skeptical of some of the praise just from having seen that filmmaker's previous films, which are not necessarily bad. I just mm-hmm. found them like sort of very chic and, and obvious. I found the ending of Bigger Splash really unconvincing. Yeah, it was term- horrible. In terms of trying to change <laughs> what the film was. Yeah. And, you know, while I was watching this, I was even very skeptical of it while, while watching it, but I was sort of won over by something rare. I wonder what the other people who've seen it would think of this. As much as people talk about how it's directed and the style and the, the, even some of the eroticism of it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interestingly script-based movie, and by a very square writer, you know, written by, by, by James Ivory or someone who's seen as, as being very square. And it just has the virtue of, I just think, wonderfully structured uh, drama and character development and the kind of dialogue that actually seems to belong to the characters while being very, you know, obviously articulate and and eloquent and getting ideas across. It's a kind of very old-fashioned virtue for a movie to have. And someone said after the screening, like, if this was 1993, this would be a big hit. Uh, You know, I didn't quite know what they meant, but it feels like a bit of a throwback (laughs) to that. Uh, For some people, I think, are treating it like that idea of, like, movies for grown-ups, like Merchant Ivory kind of used to make. But I also think that that kind of limits it in a way. I I don't think it's square or or, or boring or old-fashioned at all, but I was just impressed at how well-written it was. Well, I mean, you're you're talking to one of the big Merchant Ivory fans here, so I do not consider anything James Ivory does particularly square, especially his great films. So I'm sure James Ivory's input as screenwriter was one of the great virtues of it. I, I liked the film fine. The passionate response to it, especially among the gay cinephile community, is maybe a bit vociferous in my <laughs> estimation, but I understand uh, that, you know, People want to rally around it. People want it to be a hit. People want it to be a big deal. And there are a lot of beautiful things about it. It's actually quite a beautifully made film, especially, like you say, considering um, Luca Guadagnino's earlier films, which were perhaps a little excessive and ridiculous. Um, you say unconvincing about the end of Bigger Splash. I One of the big things I had to get over with Call Me By Your Name, and I'm not sure that I did get over it, is a, just like a basic lack of convincing <laughs> in the casting. I think that Army Hammer, while a very attractive man, is... No debate. 
very badly miscast in this film to the extent that it really it, it was a big barrier for my enjoyment of the film I, I do not buy him as a 24 year old Jewish academic those are three <laughs> things he is not and um, my point in saying that is it's not an arbitrary thing or it's not an insignificant thing that oh this 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 one role happens to be someone I don't believe in the role it's a huge thing and then therefore the, the central love story between this 17 year old kid who looks 12 and this allegedly 24-ish year old grad student who looks 36 is a little off-putting mm-hmm. and I don't really think that's necessarily a bad thing or the or, or really a fault of the film but it's something that sort of um, takes the film out of the realm of love story and pushes it into some sort of like weird movie place it's like oh that's an actor that's an actor watching two straight actors really go at it is often very off-putting to me as well. I found the film very unsexy, considering just how sexy people seem to think it is. I'm a little surprised by that. I think the direction of the film is lovely and restrained, and it gets to a really nice place. But considering how unconvinced I was by the love affair, I also found the big climactic monologue by Michael Stuhlbarg to be actually patently ridiculous. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you say all that. I, I, I agree with so much of what you said. I don't, uh, and, and it's, I'm glad to hear you articulate that gap in the age of the actors and how there is an implied narrower gap in the narrative that therefore none of the characters really react to that issue. And it's hard not to, I mean, I was reacting to that issue and it was strange that the, no, nobody in the film was. Um, it's refreshing that they weren't, but at the same time I found that disorienting. Uh, I, I think I maybe liked it a little bit more than you, but not as much as Adam, but I, I guess the thing that I was bothered by is Though I found it quite moving, it's so up my alley in so many ways. I find the script to be quite lovely. I found the directing to be all over the place. I found that there were certain sequences that I thought were elegant and perfectly restrained in other moments where it gets feverish and I'm not quite sure why. I find it kind of strangely edited. Um, so I just the craft of it, I just found pretty uneven. And I, I, uh, I think the, the material and the performances are there and I think they were a little misserved on that level. Well, I mean... And- just to highlight one little bit of craft that I think works. I think that the script is the, the great virtue and the direction is maybe a bit uneven, but there's this long passage where the two uh, characters are planning to meet at night, right? And they, they make this decision in the morning. And the entire day, I mean, it's you, you can't call it a montage. It's not a set piece. It's just a stretch of film. Right. But it's all built and rhythmed around this wristwatch. And it's not the face of the wristwatch. It's not a ticking clock in the sense that you can see the numbers and see the time counting down. It's just the presence of the watch in all these different exchanges and contexts. Like it's on the piano when the kid is playing the piano. He takes it with him when he has an encounter with another character and it's off to the side. And what I thought was wonderful was he never cuts into a close-up. It's not gimmicky. It's not all done in one take. It's not a set piece. Mm -hmm. But just the way that time is passing through the figure, through the prop of this watch, without ever going in to see the numbers, without ever going in to see time passing, I was sort of in my head watching that and thinking like, this is just beautifully conceived and, and, and directed. I'm sure it's written that way and then sort of just pulled off. You know, nicely, and it's it's that it's that same kind of restraint that Michael was talking about. And I can't think of something comparable in a movie like A Bigger Splash, where all the camera effects and all the editing effects are totally italicized the entire time. Right. So right. I, I I found that really nice. It is a thoughtfully made film. I don't want to come across like I'm bashing it in any way. I'm just um, I'm a little uh, skeptical of it in parts. And again, I just think that there's. There are some central things. I, it's, it's maybe unfair of me also to focus on the negative in terms of the casting because Timothy Chalamet, who plays the main kid, who's really the protagonist of the film, is absolutely wonderful. 
is an exquisite performance. It's an unpredictable performance. It kind of moves to the rhythms of young hormones. You never know what he's going to mm-hmm. do next. Sometimes he's supremely confident, and other times he's this little basket case. I, I, I think anybody going through that phase of life could appreciate that and relate to that character. So, um, And Michael Stuhlbarg is a wonderful actor. I just felt like there was so much riding on that last monologue, without spoiling too much, that if it, that doesn't quite work, the movie kind of topples a little bit. But, you know, people are sort of in love with that scene, so... Speaking of things that may or may not be received 100%, I thought maybe we could talk about downsizing, Alexander Payne's downsizing, which was the things that I've seen people write about it so far, pretty contentious. They're not super thrilled, but I thought the premise was interesting, so I'll I'll keep it short, but you'll see why that's funny. Uh, so it's our world, but you know, maybe like 15 years ago, there's a Norwegian scientist who comes up with this technology that can shrink human beings down to a thousandth of their size. And this has huge implications for environmental stuff, but it also means that your financial resources are also extremely extended too. So you could basically, with a couple hundred thousand dollars, live like a billionaire for the rest of your life and never work again. And Matt Damon plays a, uh, he's an occupational therapist at at a slaughterhouse, like an industrial slaughterhouse. In and he, he and his wife, Kristen Week, decide to get this procedure done because they, each, the film shows them they're this middle class that is being slowly demoted to lower class people. And they just are like, well, you know, it sucks that, you know, there are things that we want in our lives and we can't afford them. Um, and then it goes to some really other interesting places that explore how global capitalism works. Uh, there's no other way to say it. And I don't apologize for it. But... I was really with the film for most of it. And I really appreciate that Alexander Payne is trying to offer a an environmental and also social critique of the way late capitalism exploits people, makes and he doesn't sort of put people's pain on different tiers. He sort of shows how it's unfair to different people in different ways. And then in the third act, it sort of goes off in this totally different uh, realm, which sort of debunks this like, Jesus complex that certain people have like I'm the one and I was put here for this purpose uh, which is also really ambitious but the way it does it is not great but what, what did other people think I think that you and I saw a similar film yeah I mean I I, 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 w- I went with it for a long way mm-hmm. and I do think that the third act um, is a bit unfortunate um, not just because it it, it does things that quote unquote don't work. I'm, I don't care so much about that right It is a film that I don't think entirely gets off the page. And the fact that I'm aware of there being a quote-unquote third act and I'm aware of there being a turn towards a different environment in a different direction that never f- seems to make its way into the screen mm. is is why I think in, that, that, in those terms. And I do think that's generally thinking back on the entire film, even though I was going with it, I do think that it's a film that is is going after some very big ideas, ideas that I really care about and that I'm compelled by and I think that he's the right person to tackle them. There's some gap. There's sort of, there's sort of a what is it like a human nature, you know, quality to it. Big idea by a really good writer and a really good director, but there's not quite making it work yeah. somehow. Well, and to to second, I think Eric's very good point. Like exactly what you're talking about is where I started losing patience with the movie was after all of the care that it took to visualize the world, mm-hmm. and the wittiness of some of the sight gags and of the design and the attention to scale, which is very unusual in American film comedy to have something that's actually made with 
you know, that kind of purpose. And it has to be, right? Because mm -hmm. it's a science fiction conceit. And there's so many details that have to be sold. Because they don't just say, and for some reason we shrink people. Right. right? They show the process. It's really meticulous. I was just so frustrated that as the film went along, they just didn't care about that at all anymore. And all of that play with scale, all of the environments that they are occupying as small people, I get that there's still rich people and poor people and there's different neighborhoods and whatever else, but just the effort sort of seemed to to vanish. And so that meticulousness and that focus and that really buying into the idea that you were talking about, I think gets kind of sidelined. And that would be okay if, if what is being sidelined for, I thought, you know, it was really interesting dramatically or convincing or plausible or not borderline offensive. But I think that it is those things I just said. It's not convincing. It's not plausible. And where it kind of goes really in the end is kind of borderline offensive for me, at least with one character in the film. So, Yeah, well, that we can't get into that no, too much because I definitely don't necessarily agree with that. But I do because yeah. I think that's, that's, again, we're getting into the same Alexander Payne discussion, which I'm just never going to go down that, that direction. But I will yeah. say, to feed off the first thing you said in terms of the visualization and the sci-fi aspect of it, one thing I loved is that two of the main, um, I think, sources of solutions in terms of how to visualize these the miniature quality are are it's like the incredible shrinking woman like there's shots directly from lily talman incredible shrinking woman mm -hmm. and mike tv and willy wonka like it does not it, go, it goes for those shots rather than somehow making it newer or or, or more you know advanced visually yeah. i love that it's kind of old you know old hollywood special effects looking more than not it, it actually is mm -hmm. What I would say about the uh, quote-unquote problematic character is that people with thick accents aren't stupid and that accent discrimination is actually something that's very serious and people just don't talk about and the way that accents are typically used to connote somebody who is not smart or somebody who is just like incapable of complex thought, this film really shatters that. It goes out of its way to be like, just because someone doesn't have a command of the English language because, you know, they were a refugee and then were forced to become a house cleaner does not mean that they can't do very complex things with their life. And, you know, like it's uh, I thought it was like really moving on that point. But I also I understand why people are super sensitive about that. Well, I, even though Eric said we weren't going to go there, I guess you went there. Yeah. So, um, oh, yeah, I guess it's <laughs> it is worth pointing out that I'm, I'm fall, I fall somewhere in between on that one point. And I think that it's certainly something that other people will be discussing. And I don't think it's so black and white. I think that, yes, what you're saying is true. It was refreshing that that character was intelligent, passionate, emotional person, political yeah. person. There's no question, however, the film does also enjoy the cadence of her language and mm -hmm. does exploit that a bit. And there's certainly some pretty strange passages of dialogue that are used only to exploit that rhythm and it is it's a it's an invention of, of the actress i mean it's right. it's it's so it's it's a strange thing that's it's not so easy how do you know that my offensive comment wasn't directed at christoph waltz <laughs> you guys are making big 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 assumptions there was, well, that, that, probably... that is the accent that offended me i gotta say yeah i mean <laughs> you know that 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 that's a performance right there. i didn't realize we we're talking about christoph waltz who was Did much better back than the big eyes. Uh, the big eyes character <laughs> It is his best performance since Big Eyes. Yeah, it is. Yeah, why don't we just take 20 minutes to discuss Big Eyes? <laughs> the undying Big Eyes. Um, I don't want to spend too much more time on the film, no. but I will say that I thought it was mostly embarrassing. Um, and I generally 
defend most of Alexander Payne's stuff. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't say defend like it has to be defended, but I do like a lot of his films, not all of them for sure. This was missing a lot of that really kind of sturdy Midwestern humanity or humanism. What? That's what it's rooted in. Yeah, then, it, but it's uh, no, this is what... the kind of this is this when you hear the plot described, it sounds like it should be directed by a Spike Jones, written by a Charlie Kaufman, mm-hmm. and that's and I don't particularly think that would make it a better film. But there's certainly, um, I think there's a cl- bit of a clashing style with the, the way he directs and the whimsy of this particular narrative. I mean, he doesn't really know how to maintain it. I and, agree with and that. It, that. I was sort of interested in that. But, I think I was actually interested in that clash for a sure. while. Sure. Yeah, because like but, the but, mom, the mo- Matt Damon's mother is like, they can shrink people, but they can't heal my pain. Violet, everything, like, but everything in the first half hour to 45 minutes is totally fine. Yeah. I think there are, like Adam was saying, a lot of very witty sight gags. Mm-hmm. The way it creates that world is very clever. I was willing to go with it, and it really seems like something that he's emotionally and politically invested in. Yeah. As soon as it stops being about that, and it stops being about like the excess of American life and consumerism and these like you know middle class strivers, as soon mm-hmm. as it becomes something else, he just does not know how to write that script. I think. I mean, I think that that's. It's one of those movies that you just like sink lower and lower into your seat until you're basically on the floor by the end. Mm. It was. Well, why don't we talk about Mrs. Fong? Yeah, we yeah. can talk about Mrs. Fong. Yeah. I will say thus far, most of the things that I've seen and liked have been by people who are established players, ballers, shot callers, and Miss <laughs> Fong is no exception. Uh, Wong Bing, who. Even the movies that I don't particularly like, I like in the way that they slot into the overall body of work, the prolificity, which has become such a big part of his output. And this one, I think, is exceptionally, exceptionally interesting. Mm -hmm. It is a pretty easy film to describe. It follows the titular Mrs. Fong, Uh, who is introduced about a year before most of the action in the film takes place Mm -hmm. as a relatively healthy-looking middle-aged woman who we see in, I think, three shots. And then we get probably the hardest cut that I will see in a movie in 2017, where we see her about a year later, uh, where she's shriveled to basically a bundle of skin and bone. Mm -hmm. And the film proceeds from there to alternate between two kind of parallel threads, one of which is the bedside vigil that is held by her family uh, as we see them between fidgeting with their phones and generally uh, shooting the shit, just looking after her. I mean, quite literally observing her, seeing the ways in which her condition changes. I should mention that she is in the late stages of sinking deep into Alzheimer's, where her body is more or less shut down. Mm-hmm. From here, we go back and forth to scenes of relations of Mrs. Fong. As they're going out on these night fishing trips using a sort of electrical zapper. Uh, in order to bring fish in. Electri- these this crazy electrified net that's attached on this super long pole. Yeah. It's uh it's it's great. <laughs> and this is more or less the entirety of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the movies like I think Fathers and Sons is the other is actually it's it's nearest to this in terms of its runtime. It's relatively short for a Wong Bing movie. It's also near to this in the sense that the circumstances of the shoot 
sort of determine the final shape of the movie. Mm-hmm. In this case, I think it's a very short shoot, as was Fathers and Sons, because it's watching a deathbed visual, and you can't extend past that. Mm-hmm. There is no more. Now, insofar as I've like sussed the movie out in my own mind, the only way that I know to describe it to myself, and the only way that I know how to figure out the connection between these fishing scenes and these bedside visual scenes is it's a movie very much concerned with two different acts of concentration and anticipation. Uh, what are you doing when you're fishing? You know, you're out there, you're taking your time, the fish come or they don't come. What are you doing when you're sitting by a sick bed waiting for someone to expire? You're watching, you're waiting, you're looking for the signs. And then the thing happens. Mm -hmm. It's a very simple sort of associative structure, but I think it's very, very moving. Uh, It doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have a preponderance of beautiful shots, though the man has an eye. And, you know, particularly with the nocturnal fishing scenes, there are things in it which are beautiful in a way. And I will only say that, you know, that, that hard cut, which I mentioned, is one of the most gaspingly painful things uh, that I've encountered for a while. And long after most of the rest has fallen away, I think that Miss Fong and that in particular will stay with me. Can I, can I, I just want to, you did a wonderful job of talking about that. And I don't have so much to add, but I will just say that in terms of, you said he has an eye and there are some amazing shots. What I love about his cinema in general and what is gorgeous about this film is He's, he, he may he can get some great shots, but his shots are always dependent on what's happening in that space with those people. And the fact that the shot making there is dependent on how comfortable or how invited he is in the room in any particular moment in terms of his relationship to where he is on the bed, how far away from the bed, who he's trying to incorporate into a shot is what's defining it. And so I think you wind up having some some shots that I'll never forget not because he's looking for a great shot, but because he's actually responding to what's happening in the room. And that just it, it winds up being an incredible frame. Well, they're films, I would say this, of the, the corpus as a whole, but of this one in particular, they're films in which you really are aware of the filmmaker and his crew, and you're really aware of intuition and film sense at work moment to moment. You see adjustments being made, you see the moment being sort of sought out. And I mean, it's it's wonderful, particularly last 20 minutes or so as as our protagonist, such as it is, is really once and for all going that we, having spent most of the movie observing her from one side, we now retreat and enough space is given. But still, well, all of these emotional and personal and human concerns are at work he never ceases to think aesthetically there are these very very well laid out sort of figural groupings and Mm -hmm. he's certainly not directing anything just the degree to which you feel the person behind the camera in the most i think interesting uh, and touching sort of way uh, in his films in general and in this one in particular uh, something that I'm always very impressed with. I wanted to add to that. Um, this, that I, I do think this is this is one of the finest things that I've seen here. And just you've both said everything that could possibly be said. And just on, on a personal note, um, you know, I did find or I felt 
early on that this would be too difficult a film to watch just for personal reasons and and that you're basically watching somebody dying of Alzheimer's in the camera for most of the film, like you say, it retreats later for most of the film is very up close, right in her face. And um, those sorts of films, I don't say sorts of films, like it's a widespread genre, <laughs> but films like Dying at Grace, films like Lying in the House, mm-hmm. movies that are about um, death, movies that have the camera very close up in some people's final moments. Those tactics can come off sometimes as forthrightly artful or or that the the filming of a person dying in and of itself is an aesthetic triumph and what's great about this movie is that it clearly doesn't feel that way because it has this whole other conceit as you describe and so was able to continue the film and i'm glad that i did and because this whole other world that it creates which is really right outside the door of the fisherman is really quite stunning and and whatever the parallels that are being created between the two almost mean less to me than the fact that he found something else to show. And that's really, really important. I mean, aside from like the watching and waiting aspect, it also shows the absurdity of that situation of having a family member that you're basically waiting for them to die, that you have to go on like normal. You have to, you, you do have to still eat. You have to go out and get food. But you, but you're so, and, and but you're so distanced from, the family right. watching her die right because it's not your family right so exactly. you're, you're so you're kind of in a sense forced to critique them right exactly. is that the you're, correct it, way to mourn is that or, are they showing enough like, compassion why, and yeah, tenderness why are you talking none of them are doctors and they're like well she'll, she'll, i think she's doing this i think she's doing that but well, like, you could that's interp- what you do you, well, in that situation you, you could interpret it as kind of strangely callous if you want i mean yeah. this is a woman who's still alive exactly who's still coherent when they're talking about they're talking about her funeral and they're Mm -hmm. pointing at her and you know i think her eyes are moving differently today i'm sure she's dying any minute now yeah i mean there's there's also there's there's something else going on there as well there's there's, um almost as if the waiting is not just waiting but it's like they're hurrying it up so they so they can get on with their lives not to criticize them because this is what we all do exactly exactly it's just showing that process and i mean that's hard to watch but then also again it's a part of life just like catching something and eating it is a right. part of life too. They will keep fishing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Mo- great motivational quote. Gotta keep fishing. <laughs> Long bang. I'm by no means an expert on the subject, but from what very, very limited dabbling I have had in Chinese poetry of, say, the seventh or eighth century, and not long ago, I was uh, piecing through my volume of Du Fu, but. Uh, <laughs> As one does. But, I mean, I, I, I do feel like these, like, very hard sort of jumps from the sick bed to the wider world and to the natural world. I mean, it's certainly not unique to Chinese poetry, but right. I think that there is some parallel there to the way that we are suddenly very quickly yeah, moving from one thing to another, and this metaphor is sort of built out over the course of the film. Mm-hmm. Yes, but like you crucially said earlier, because I was thinking the same thing, there's, it's not that it's beautiful necessarily. I, I I would never say this is a beautiful film. Beautiful film about p- passing on. It's not that at all. Mm-hmm. So what's amazing Beatific. is you're cutting... She, yes, he's cutting to these other actions and spaces and they are dealing with the natural world but they're not it's not this um you know pastoral yeah, setting I've, where you I've can seen cons- so consider much, God. Michael, I've seen so much like sun dappled like super 16 pastoralism (laughs) 
that just like hard grubby digital video of uh like a filthy polluted pond somewhere in rural china <laughs> where all the battery was, acid is yeah, leaking onto the just, fish <laughs> you know an absolute balm yes. for me yes. I, one can have too much of beauty well speaking of that maybe we could go to another documentary that is also shot in super close up and deals with matters of the flesh which is Kaniba. Yeah, let's talk Hi, about Kaniba. Kaniba. Well, okay, so Kaniba is the latest from Barina Paravel and Lucien Castang Taylor. I had heard people round town referring to it as the Japanese cannibal movie, but what I did not know until I actually sat down to watch it is that the subject is a fairly famous case, especially if you're a true crime dirtbag like myself, oh, hell yeah. which is the case of Isai Sagawa, who's very famous execution of a Dutch schoolmate while he was studying comparative literature in Paris in 1981, among other things, inspired a Rolling Stones lyric. And because of his very well-connected family, even though he killed and ate this classmate of his uh, and was found ditching her body in one of the Parisian parks, I forget which one, caught red-handed, to quote the great Muppet Caper, he to the best of my recollection, did little or no jail time because he was extradited to Japan. Mm -hmm. And none of this is discussed in great length in the film. You get sort of the bare minimum. Title card in the beginning. Yeah, bare minimum of contextualizing information. However, through the course of watching it, I think you can sort of fill in the gaps. As you mentioned, it's mostly done in these sort of searching, very, very tight close-ups which drift in and out of focus. But there's also some interstitial archival material. We see some porno movies that he shot because... Uh, his I think his brother, actually. Oh, is is it? I think the porns were No, no, no. He was in them. Yeah. Because that was sort of the only work he could get after uh, murdering, oh, uh, after I such thought, a sex right, We don't crime. have to go into all this. Yeah. But yeah. But you also see a lot of vintage home movies of he and his brother, who is now acting uh, in... The contemporary material as his caretaker, uh, Isai, is suffering from some kind of undisclosed, seemingly semi-paralytic sickness. We see home movies of them which make it pretty clear that they come from a fairly well-heeled background. And among other things, I think it's one of the most chilling studies in privilege that you'll ever find because you encounter the subject... I don't know if it's at the end of his life, but he seems to be significantly withered and reduced. Mm -hmm. As the movie ends, there's a uh, hired nurse wearing a sort of French-made costume mm -hmm. who is, you know, comes in to entertain him with palaver and so on and so forth. Certainly, the man has had travails, mm -hmm. but in point of fact... The subject of the film, someone who killed and ate a woman, and because of the particular connections that he enjoyed, has suffered no enormous setbacks in his life because of that. If anything, has had the pleasure to ruminate on and relive in manga and in his... To profit from, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, to profit from uh, and to obtain a small measure of celebrity. I mean, he's not like going on Japanese dancing with the stars or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, I really like that concept, though. It's too bad he's sick now. 
yeah, to, to encounter this particular individual who under any circumstances would be a interesting specimen, but to encounter him particularly in his second infancy makes it an extraordinarily interesting and troubling movie. And I should say also, cinematographically, it does some very, very strange things, not only in that we're kept in these rather claustrophobic close-ups for much of the film, but these close-ups are shifting in strange and disorienting ways, seeming almost to dissolve into vapor because of very slow uh, focus pulls. Uh, and it gives the entire thing a sort of queasy, ghostly quality, I suppose. I mean, you have a sense, I think, while watching this guy that you're watching, you're getting a transmission from beyond the grave. He seems half ghost to me throughout. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's thinking about uh, the, 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 that filmmaking team and Leviathan, how Leviathan is sort of famously maximalist, and this is supremely minimalist. Well, I mean, um, what interested me is, I mean, I like Leviathan very much, as I think do you, but it's so much an unrepeatable exactly, yeah. undertaking right. that but, I, I had no idea what... What this would even be, yeah. yeah. But but what's, what's interesting to me is that how it shows in both respects... Um, how uh, purposeful, intelligent, provocative filmmaking kind of trumps any trend idea of what the stylistic choices might be, which in the sense of, of Leviathan, it became the GoPro film, right? But it's to date the only actual good GoPro film. And this is, in a sense, the best shallow focus film I've seen. <laughs> like this has been a trend for like 15 years in independent film, especially independent documentary film. And to see them take it to its limit, basically, so that you're hardly like you're out of focus as much as you're in focus and what that means because when you go into focus you're looking at the flesh of a man who's eaten flesh mm -hmm. that's how you visually grapple with this man and his life is to look at his own flesh well, not it's only so that, interesting and hard to reconcile not only that but his brother slash caretaker is a sort of self-abuser uh, masochist mm -hmm. and we see him mortifying himself with barbed wire taking a cluster of butcher knives to his armpit. But it's a film as much about what is not seen as is seen. Absolutely. And it's interesting that it's in the festival it's talked of as being like the gross-out film that everybody can't watch on a full stomach, and yet like, <laughs> it actually is so restrained. I, I, had, I had a Godfather hoagie in there. I was <laughs> walking down. <laughs> Some loose meats. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly, plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. So maybe we can switch gears and uh, talk about a totally different master, uh, Lucretia Martel, who is back after so long, and I'm so happy she's back with Zama, which is just a incredible film, but very hard to summarize. So I will turn that over to Adam Neyman. Yeah, very hard film to summarize, Zama, as people were saying. <laughs> Um, I made the mistake of not reading the reading the source novel, and it was weird because this was kind of a thing for like two weeks before the Venice Film Festival. People on 
Twitter or even just people who I email with were like, have you, have you found Zama to read, right? Like this actually was multiple people were, were saying this because, you know, she's never made a, Lucretia Martel's never made a film based on a literary source. This is a very celebrated novel, mm-hmm. you know, one of the most celebrated sort of South American novels, very culturally and historically specific. And, you know, when the film started, I, I, I kind of had two thoughts. Like my first thought, much as Viva kind of set up, is like, I'm just so glad Lucretia Martel is back. I love being inside her frames. Mm-hmm. I love being inside these spacious but claustrophobic, you know, these groupings with little limbs and bits and snouts, like the dog snouts sticking out. Great dogs. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be inside her sound design. I'm thrilled to be in a movie where the relationship between foreground and background isn't just visually precise, but ties to what the film is about. I love a movie where I think the first line of dialogue is voyeur, you know, directed <laughs> both at uh, Zaba himself and also to some extent at the audience. I'm just, I'm just thinking I'm so happy to be in this because I've been spending three weeks in Toronto on the ground watching abject garbage, and then I'm in a Lucrecia Martel movie. But I also found myself thinking, God, I wish I read the novel. Because yeah. the only honest way to talk about this film is to say it is very challenging, is very disorienting narratively. It is oblique even by Lucrecia Martel's standards. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was exhilarated while, while watching it. And I was also, and this is not meant as a put down at all, so I'm, I'm qualifying it. I was kind of exhilarated when it finally ended because it really took something out of me to watch that and concentrate and focus on it and enjoy it as much as I did while admitting humbly to myself that it kind of defeated me yeah. on, on a level of narrative coherence and in terms of just like a, just like pure aesthetically, you know, pure aesthetic overwhelming of, of, of me as a viewer. So I, I, I think I kind of love it. I think it's one of the major things I've seen here. And I'm just, again, very happy that she's back, but I'm also just wondering how people who haven't read the book or even people who have are going to write about it in any kind of really convincing way because, Wikipedia. well, as is often the case, but when Cliff you... Cliff notes. Yeah. But, 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 it's, but it's true. And I mean, you know, I don't know if this is part of what Elisa wants to speak to when I, when I stop talking in a second, but like she's always made films that are very much about class and that are very much even about race and racial yes. grouping within Argentina, which this film about an aristocrat, you know, in a small town, you know, lording over and, and, and other characters, you know, lording over and being lorded over by these servants. I mean, it, it's there, but I, I'm just not equipped... To, to to go into it in the kind of detail that I think she understands in making it and, and, and that I think it deserves. So suffice it to say, I'm much less interested in reading the tweets about Zama than I am about someone who's Argentinian or someone who's really, really familiar with the novel going in depth on it. I think it's going to be great when somebody well, does. Sorry, we have to say this since this is the Film Comment podcast that we have an incredible in-depth feature by Jose right. Teodoro who knows the novel inside out mm-hmm. and he's it's basically you see the film and then you read this article because it just Toronto based writer Jose yeah. Teodoro yes, yes. who's yes. terrific it's yes. a brilliant piece great but before anyone watches the film or reads these pieces I, I would say like I definitely recommend reading the book first because Exiting the screening, there was definitely a very polarized response coming from people who've read the book versus people who haven't read the book. And of course, everyone who was there was extremely elated that this was the return of the great Lucrezia Martel, whose last film was 2008's Headless Woman. Personally, I have also not read the book, so I have to say I was sort of playing this uh, game with myself as I was watching it, kind of distracted by trying to follow the very, very uh, oblique narrative while at the same time 
wanting to enjoy the visual beauty that was being laid out. And I think as far as, um, you know, very lush and Baroque period pieces go, this is like one of the more beautiful films that I've seen. Although I heard that the reason why, part of the reason why she's been away from filmmaking for so long is because she was sick. Mm -hmm. Um, But she did shoot this uh, a lot, a few years ago. I don't recall what year exactly, but it was quite a few years ago. And she only finished it recently. And there are some really questionable shots in the film, which I found myself just questioning, like uh, some people's heads get cut off in the middle of the frame. And um, there's some shots that move very strangely. And, um, you know, for instance, there's this hunting scene that's very, feels very sped up, but um, it's really hard to tell whether that was uh, part of the intent, artistic intent, or if it was... um, you know, um, something that was sort of retrofitted to just complete the film. Mm. So it was a very disorienting experience, to say the least. But it has one of the greatest closing sequences that I've ever seen mm-hmm. in any film. And all the actors are, are wonderful in it. Like so many people, we've been saying, I've been thrilled to see a new Lucretia Martel film. It's been so long. I was expecting obliqueness. I got obliqueness. <laughs> I got a big, heavy dose of obliqueness, but I actually never felt a loss. And I and I don't and I don't mean that I was following every plot point, but I mean that she creates such a splendid mise en scène that I just don't think that it's difficult. Though I know that on second, third viewing, everything will come more into focus for me. I just have heard a lot of people say that they had a hard time with it, but I think I was just so entranced by what she had put up there that it just seemed completely coherent to me and it's also just to, to go in the direction of it's not so forbidding is that it's actually quite comedic too i think yeah there's comedy there's visual comedy there's comedy in performance in, in moments yeah i find it i find it actually for as difficult and as oblique as it is i also found it pretty entertaining yeah. for for large stretches there's a part near the end where uh some people are captured by native people and there's just like you can't tell what's happening to them. They're just like being painted red and then like getting rushed around and there's a door slam and the scream and then they come out and then they're out again getting painted red and something is happening and then the door slams. It's sort of funny, but it's also ter- absolutely terrifying. It's like you have no idea what's going on. Um, yeah, she puts you into the minds of the characters. You're as disoriented 100%, as 100%. Which is what she's always brilliant at. Yeah. But also it maintains that critique of everything else, you know, that these all the bad things that the characters you're in the heads of are profiting from. In, in, in some of the passages that are being described, I will say that it's Zama's the only film that I've seen, again, because the festival's been going for me for a little longer just because I'm based here in Toronto in a screening room where I felt in the last second half of the film, I felt the whole screening room sit up. Mm. Right, and it's not like a horror movie crowd response or a comedy crowd response, but but when certain turns happen in the film, yeah, and when the environment of the film changes, the geography of the film changes, there's a, the films jumping in time, the narrative changes. Yeah. I could feel the screening room sitting up. Well, yeah, because because for most of it, it's actually a film about torpor, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so when that actually changes, because he's he's this magistrate named Zama is waiting to be restationed, and mm-hmm. that's what it's about. He's kind of slowly going crazy as he's waiting and waiting and waiting for a transfer. Yeah. So when it does shift into something else for the last third, it is sort of exhilarating. The way that sound marks the passage of time, not the great passage of time, but the endless space of a conversation, just that that fan. 
going and the creaking of that thing so that a one and a half, two minute dialogue scene becomes absolutely endless mm-hmm. when you're talking about that idea of, of, of torpor. But of course, the sound, the rhythmic sound means time is passing, just passing so agonizingly. Yeah, and that he's always being left behind be it uh, with these multiple requests to be transferred or trying to get into the pants of somebody's wife or I should say giant poofy dress because this is olden times. Yeah, it's so excellent. And again, a very lush but crumbling world. Uh, Yeah, it's a great portrait of uh, colonial decay. Yeah. Zama is a film about a static patriarch. Why don't we talk about Louis C.K.'s I Love I love you, Daddy. I didn't even realize that there was a Louis C.K. film in the festival until like the week before. He's so I don't know weird about with you guys. PR. Yeah. Remember Horace and Pete? That whole thing where he's like, "Oh, actually, I, love yeah, I made a thing." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I so. look how we're making fun of him. That's how he talks, though. He's like, it "Oh, is. I made a thing," oh. and then he twitches his face all weird. Anyway, go ahead. So, I mean, not only did he make a a film that's in this festival, it's also like this brilliant, scintillating, you know, 16 millimeter black and white uh, film shot by his uh, usual DP who worked on Horace and Pete. And it's sort of like Louis C.K. doing Woody Allen, a a little more crass and a little more, perhaps a little more offensive. (laughs) But it's also very personal. Like, clearly, it's sort of, like, based on his own life, so much of his other work. You know, there's a... Chloe Moretz plays uh, his daughter. He plays a single father who is the writer of a television series that was just being picked up. No imagination. (laughs) Funny that you say that he's, like, doing Woody Allen when actually the subject of the film is probably about... Woody Allen, in a way, yeah. I this also, John Malkovich character. Yes, the, the John. There's a brilliant John Malkovich performance in which John Malkovich plays a uh, filmmaker, a very August filmmaker who is accused of uh, molesting children. Um, no, the case, which was uh, <laughs> and never, he was never charged for it. But yeah, I thought I thought it was like either Woody Allen or Louis C.K. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but yeah, just flashing his stuff. I mean, being a, big, being a big fan of his, for the most part, and yeah. really loving Horace and Pete, and I've actually spoken of that briefly on the podcast before. I was a huge fan of that. I will say that I expected more mm-hmm. from I Love You, Daddy. Um, I thought, especially because of the, also the way the show Louis had gone, where he was doing more and more, for lack of a better term, experimental stuff in terms of narrative in terms of continuing storylines and length of episodes and things like that i thought well there's a secret louis ck project no one knows anything about it i mean this could be anything this could be extraordinary and then it starts and you realize okay this is a pretty straightforward yeah louis ck comic drama yeah that's not to say that it's not particularly good i enjoyed a lot of things about it i loved looking at it and I thought that Edie Falco is always welcome. I just love Edie Falco. Oh, she, yeah, when she's yeah, on screen, yeah. you forget that everyone else is on screen. She plays this very neurotic production manager. Mm. Producer or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I thought that it had just enough of that Louis C.K. provocation to make it interesting. Yeah. Right? It's going to be a film that will make a lot of people squeamish and angry because mm-hmm. it deals with old men, younger women, fathers and daughters. I mean, he's going right for the jugular in terms yes. of the things that we're not supposed to talk about now. And you know yeah. that's what Louis C.K. does in his stand-up. Um, all that considered, it's sort of benign, ultimately, which is mm-hmm. yes. also one of the surprises. But um, I enjoyed it. I, I, I want him to go further. So. It's, it's very easily enjoyable. I mean, the film is so 
beautifully shot. I mean, it sort of looks like Stardust Memories and a sort of high contrast black and white. And there are some really beautiful outdoor sequences. At one point, he goes to the beach, and that is just a very beautiful scene. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that people will easily be offended by it, but perhaps if that's sort of the initial reaction, then you sort of miss the point, which is that he is sort of doing the self-examination. And at one point, his character actually says, I'm sorry to all the women, you know? It's sort of this, like, um, apology to to the sort of, like, offenses that people have sort of projected onto him um, over time. Or brought against him because he flashed them. Well, yes, that club. too, yeah. Back before he was doing the woke material. But anyway... <laughs> But it's, it was very enjoyable. I mean, I um, hope a lot of people get to see it. Yeah. yeah, it seems like it might end up on Netflix or something. It seemed like it could be television. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know. Well, now that we've talked about Daddy, maybe we can talk about Mother! Mother. I did indeed see Darren Aronofsky's Mother. I saw it on assignment. Otherwise, I think I would have given this bad boy a very wide berth indeed because I have a track record of extreme antipathy towards Darren Aronofsky. But I plonked myself down. I watched the movie. <laughs> and I gotta tell you, it's got some moves. Uh-oh. <laughs> Could you summarize the conceit? The conceit is this. We encounter Jennifer Lawrence living in this sort of palatial country house. She is the significantly younger wife of a brooding writer's block suffering poet played by Javier Bardem, who is a sort of celebrity poet. And if you, I mean, yeah. Because those exist. Yes, I mean, I think that the movie has a significant amount of fun with, intentionally or not, I don't know, the very idea of a celebrity poet existing in the 21st century. He's this sort of like amalgam of Khalil Gibran and David Koresh by the end of the movie. <laughs> And okay, now I'm interested. <laughs> and they're dropped in on unexpectedly by Ed Harris, who identifies himself as a doctor who has just moved into the area on a research assignment, who is looking for a room to rent, and he winds up staying the night. And from here, it sort of becomes this gradually snowballing narrative of impositions upon the domestic space, which is maintained lovingly and scrupulously by the Jennifer Lawrence character, whose role is almost entirely that of caretaker, sort of nanny to her uh, husband, who looks after him in all of his moods, and who, as she's trying to maintain this sort of citadel, finds herself again and again being imposed upon first by Ed Harris, then his wife, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, shows mm -hmm. up at the house. Gradually, we bec it, it becomes more and more outlandish. Comparisons have been made, not entirely without reason, to the Polanski Apartment trilogy movies. Yeah. But I think as the film progresses, it goes somewhere that is you know, it can only be a Darren Aronofsky movie. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think it is a movie that will be contentious to say the very least. I'm not usually in the um, habit of taking up my sword and shield for Darren Aronofsky, but I will say this. There are themes that are very much at the fore in the movie. 
this sort of idea of the artist as vampire slash bluebeard. Uh, we also get a lot of material that relates directly to the liturgy of uh, Catholic Mass. And these things are right there on the surface, and you can take take them or leave them. They are perhaps at times puerile. However, there is an incredible muscularity to the filmmaking and a real uh, dab-handedness in the way that this very slow ratcheting up of anxiety is accomplished. So when it does break out into full bedlam, when all hell almost quite literally breaks loose, it's achieved very, very much by increment, and it happens in the, the this sly, insinuating way that it feels very earned in the way that the bombast of, say, a Requiem for a Dream does not. There's a sort of tonal precision and control at work that I have not seen in previous Aronofsky films, and even though I'm not enormously attracted to the themes that I think were of importance to him in making it. I think it happens to brush by some very, very... I shouldn't say happens to. I don't want to ascribe intentionality. I will say it touches on very interesting ideas about the permeability and the weakness of uh, the domestic world as a citadel Mm. and a sense that I think a lot of us have that there is absolutely no way to keep this litany of horror from seeping into our day-to-day lives. Mm. And I don't want to, just because Darren Aronofsky is not a filmmaker who I have liked in the past, say, well, it could only possibly be good because he stumbled ass-backwards into something interesting. I think that... It is, if not a marker to a new chapter of Darren Aronofsky being my favorite filmmaker, I think, if not a total home run, this is a good standing up triple. Okay. Yeah. The past uh, couple of days, I've been having conversations in which I tell people that it's Darren Aronofsky's best film, and they look at me like I've betrayed some holy cinephile Bible. But that's not to say that I think it's a great film, or maybe even a good film at all in concept. However, I truly believe that if one were to watch this movie and not come away impressed by the filmmaking, you don't know how to watch a movie. This is extremely impressive filmmaking. I think that he's changed the way he makes films over the years. He's just really at the top of his game here. He's not doing a kind of like chopped up thing that he did early on, which, you know, has its fans. But I was never a fan of Requiem for a Dream or Pi or even any of his other films, actually. <laughs> but um, there's something about the way that he builds and builds and builds. I mean, this, if you think about this film just physically, what you have is a blank canvas that just keeps having elements added and added and added bit by bit until you're compl- until it becomes like a Bruegel, right? It's the kind of film where so much is happening and out of the corner of so many frames and so many things. It's the sense of the inner world suddenly being unleashed on the outer world. And there are so many different interpretations of this film once you see where it goes that are stupid, that it makes you want to kind of like retroactively hate the film or at least um, accuse him of a certain kind of cynicism or a certain kind of self-congratulatory-ness, actually, because 
one of the things that ultimately seems to be is a movie about this artist unable to reconcile his own success and fame with the other things that make a person whole, whether that's the domestic sphere, whether that's being kind to the environment, being kind to the planet. What you have here is many things battling for supremacy, many themes battling for supremacy. And depending on what you kind of viewer you are, one of them emerges unscathed, right? The one that seems the most valid, perhaps, is the one that you pointed out. But it's also the most solipsistic. So what I'm trying to work through is just how do I, how do I kind of square the, the technical brilliance with the rather simplistic allegory? It should be said, the film does things that you do not often see done in movies made in 2017 in the sense that none of the characters are properly named so like we're in the realm of silent cinema and that we have the poet and the mother and you know the right. visitor and so yes. on and so he, he knows he's doing allegory he's a capital a allegory yeah uh yeah we are we are in fritz lang territory here murnau um and which is not to say that Aronofsky is the equal to either. Um, but we should mention also, as we're talking about this as the you know allegory of the poet's struggle, that the actual conceit of the movie is that I believe pretty much all of the information that we as viewers receive is filtered through the Jennifer Lawrence character, who as a sort of silently suffering helpmate is never at the center of the ostensible action. She's always sort of hovering on the periphery, bringing tea in, taking care, and very much is a sort of afterthought. But that is is our identification character in a very, very major way. I mean, we actually have POV shots where we're looking down at the swollen, pregnant stomach of the Jennifer Lawrence character in the shower. And... This is just a spectacularly well-developed conceit. I should mention also the sound design is incredibly well-worked through this... For like, a film with no music. Yeah, uh, this music concrete of just sort of threatening sound reverberating throughout the house. The, these sort of creaky, settling old house sounds which gradually build into this crescendo of pure anarchy mm. right and and when that happens it is it's it's very moving and what i do like is about it is that it's not always um explicable why or what it is and it it's i'll let's just leave it by saying that it's one of the few films i've seen this week that i can't stop thinking about for better or worse well we have to end things now for better or worse but before we do it would be great if each of us said one film that only we saw that we quite liked. Adam, why don't you go first? So one of the only films that I've seen here at this voluminous, gigantic festival that I've thought about really for more than a couple seconds and actually thought about a lot and been really interested in talking to people about is Joseph Kahn's Bodied, which also happens to actually be a Toronto premiere. Happens to be a really interesting and provocative choice for the Midnight Madness section and happens to be a film that I think is so self-annotating and self-critical and self-controlled that it's kind of very obnoxious and obnoxious to talk about because it anticipates any problems that you might have with it and then throws them back at you. It anticipates any praise you might have for it and kind of plays into it. But 
you know, as I, as I wrote, and I do think this, like I tried not to get carried away while I was writing it. And I, I've tried to think about the film more soberly since it has a texture of nowness to it. I hate zeitgeist based criticism and sort of saying this is the way we something now, but it has a nowness to it, a 2017 ness to it that I sort of can't shake. And some of that is its obnoxiousness and kind of its hatefulness and its performativity. But he's made a movie that I think, um, even though it's not about social media, it kind of gets what's addictive and compelling and combative and dangerous about that. And to do that in the guise of essentially an extended satire of 8 Mile, which ends up being produced by Eminem, featuring Eminem's own music cues in a way that's really weaponized, I think, against him and against the kind of praise that Eminem won around the time of 8 Mile. I mean, if you remember in 8 Mile, the whole idea at the end is that he's more authentic than the people that he outwraps, right? He's coming right. from underneath. He tells them at the end, you know, you go to a private school. It's a really simplistic reading of 8 Mile. I, I don't dislike 8 Mile. I would happily talk about 8 Just Mile on, this, on, this, on this, this podcast about uh, Bodied. I think that's a line embodied. Just talk into the mic. You scream. Um, <laughs> Yo, <laughs> that talk actually into the happens. mic. It's really nice. Yeah. But <laughs> rap, it, rap, rap. But, but it is just interesting in contrast to 8 Mile that there's nothing <laughs> working class about body. The character here is a grad student who, you know, white grad student. He's at Berkeley. He um, is, you know, going and researching battle raps. He comes across this rapper whose, whose stage name is Ben Grimm, who's African-American. And he sort of comes to him and he says, you know, I'm really interested in what words you say and what words you're allowed to use and how these battles sort of proceed. So it comes from a place of curiosity, like he's going to be the guy writing about it. And then he sort of begins participating in it. And it's just interesting to see what happens when you have a, a, a plot like this about a character who says, well, this is just for purposes of research. And I'm kind of outside of it. And I don't believe any of it. But, you know, it, 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 I'm, I'm trying to understand how this language works. And eventually it's not about understanding how this language works. It's sort of just about using it and benefiting from it and being praised for it. And I just think that the discomfort that the movie provokes is 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 pretty productive. I always tend to find Joseph Kahn's stuff interesting. I think Torque's a really good satire. I think Detention has uh, satirical merit. And, and, and so too with this film as a kind of a an irritating pop object. So yeah, I've, I've thought a lot about it. It's unbelievably funny and so well written by this Toronto area battle rapper named Alex Larson, who goes by Kid Twist. It's a really good script. It kind of reminded me of like if Edgar Wright made a movie that was about something. It, it reminded me a lot of the way Baby Driver was made this year, but you know, but, but, but maybe with a little bit more on its mind. And if someone does buy it and distribute it, I think that in the think piece culture side of film writing, in the idea of, you know, does, is a movie's ideology something that it's endorsing or is a movie's ideology something it's exploring? I think it's going to kind of drive people crazy. I guess my selection is something a lot more anodyne, but I but I but I liked a lot. It's called Lean on Pete from Andrew Hay, the director of Weekend and Forty Five Years. Lovely filmmaker. Um, every time I've seen his films, I'm really impressed with all the way he composes his shots. And this, in outline, sounds like he took a turn to the sentimental. I mean, it, it's hard to describe the film without saying that it's in some way about a boy and his horse. <laughs> as soon as you say that, all sorts of images come into your head. It's actually a supremely unsentimental movie about an, an animal. Well, it's, it's much more about him, but the, his relationship with, with this horse. It's really just about this coming of age and his 
personal struggles. He comes from a lower class family. Something happens to his father. I won't say what it is. And then he's sort of out on his own. And for a period, the horse is his only companion. And that's actually a very, very sad thing when you think about it. Movies kind of play that up as fantasy, but this is quite a sad film. Chloe Sevigny's in it, who is wonderful as always. And really interesting cast, Steve Zahn. All all these terrific character actors make great appearances. I I just was consistently delighted by it. I think he's a wonderful filmmaker. I'm disappointed myself that I didn't complete the trifecta. I didn't see the third tennis film of the festival. But I saw two out of three. I missed missed Battle of the Sexes. But I did see the glorious Borg McEnroe. And I saw a film called Love Means Zero. Borg McEnroe very quickly, briefly expeditiously is uh, one of the worst films I've seen in a long time. It is, uh, I mean, I actually kind of enjoyed it. Uh, It was nice to go see the world premiere of a film, sit in a large room and laugh my ass off at something that was not meant to be funny. There's really nothing to be said other than Shia LaBeouf plays John McEnroe. And clearly, why wouldn't he? Clearly, I mean, looks, I mean, like his, I mean, he, yeah, he looked as not, he doesn't have the athletic build. He doesn't have anything about him that's John McEnroe like, except for that he's a quote unquote bad boy. And I think the direction was that he should play himself as John McEnroe. So therefore, all of his annoying cadences and ways of walking and being in space is retained for playing a very famous man named John McEnroe that we all know how he moves and talks. Um, and he's introduced with music cues of like Ramon's songs. So you know that he is the rocker, not the Swede, um, who is Bjorn Borg. Contrasted with that is Love Means Zero. Then it lays film from Jason Cohn, who it's been a good solid decade since he made a film, made a film called Mandabala years ago. Mm. And he was a protege of Errol Morris. And this is him making his way back to a film which is sort of an unlikely source. I don't think it was intended as his next film. It is probably something that came together rather recently. I do know that he's a big tennis fan and it is Nick Boletari who's this sort of famous controversial tennis coach who was famously coached uh, Andre Agassi and Jim Courier and various other champions and very, very early on in the film it's established that Nick Boletari is an absolutely terrible documentary subject in that he has no self-reflection and he's going to be a bad interview for the whole film. And that's one yeah, of the he first is things. He's, he's, he's a tough guy and not a very likable guy. That's me. That's just Nick. He's not a very likable guy. I have guy. no answers. Yeah. There's yeah. no yes or no. It's just Nick. <laughs> right. And so it starts off establishing this. And so I think it's like, to me, it was like made it for an incredibly exciting viewing experience because you think, oh, here's a sports doc. Okay, this is going to be a profile Maybe he'll be like difficult, and instead it's just how is he going to make this movie about this guy who's giving him nothing? There are so many stylized documentaries that we see to see one that is making strong visual choices but actually kind of has something behind it. So one film that I'm really surprised to be the only person to have seen in this room is the new Paul Schrader film called First Reformed. Um, and it stars a wonderful Ethan Hawke and uh, Amanda Seyfried. And it's sort of Paul Schrader's return to serious narrative filmmaking. But it's also got some really surprising stylistic choices uh, sort of uh, nestled into sort of the second half. It's his Diary of a Country Priest uh, in that Ethan Hawke literally plays a country priest (laughs) who writes a diary. (laughs) 
No, but in the beginning of the film, he starts to write this uh, diary that's going to uh, go on for twelve uh, months as this exercise. That's also sort of the structuring principle of the the film. Without getting too much into um, what he talks about, he encounters uh, a young woman who's recently pregnant, uh, played by Amanda Seyfried, whose husband recently returned from a trip to Canada. They are both environmental activists, and he was recently imprisoned for one of his trips to protest saving a forest in northern Canada. And he's extremely down and needs to talk to this priest to uh, sort of absolve these feelings. But before they're able to go much further, he ends up committing suicide. And after that happens, a sort of turn happens in the character of Ethan Hawke's and and he begins to question his own surroundings. He's sort of infected by the ideas that this young man has put into his head. Um, and at the same time, the uh, church that he works in is, I would say, threatened by uh, very wealthy benefactors who are also owners of a power plant in the same city. And it's sort of this incredibly depressing upstate New York milieu. But he gives an incredible interior performance and um, it's incredibly moving. I really, really loved it. it. It sort of goes from Diary of a Country Priest into taxi driver territory and the ending is incredibly abrupt and that's all I'll say about it. I was just going to give a little lip service to a handful of shorts that I saw in the Wavelengths program because nobody gives enough love to short films. Jody Mack's movie Wasteland Number 1, Ardent Verdant, which very, very conceptually simple. You're moving between two sorts of landscapes, one of which are circuit boards, the other of which are these flower-covered fields, but it has just a really nice cadence about it. Real, uh, real lovely sort of stutter step movement, and it was just a moving experience for me to watch. I wanted also to uh, give a little love to Rowan Nasifi's Turtles Are Always Home. Uh, I think she might be a Canadian person, yeah. Uh, which is all these uh, shots of Doha, Qatar, uh, in this sort of simulacra of Venice. Uh, with these sort of pastel kitsch casas and uh, canals running between them. I was unfamiliar with the filmmaker coming in, which got an absolutely fantastic eye. There's a good half dozen indelible images buried in the thing, passed through in a very short amount of time. And then uh, Ben Crotty and Bertrand Desitou's division movement to Vung Tao which is comprised entirely of archival footage of what I assume to be Vietnam-era military operations. And each scene is comprised of a sort of iris in and an iris out. The only alteration that's been made outside of the irises are these anthropomorphic uh, fruit. Uh, The first uh, moment where one appears on the scene, there's a uh, helicopter taking off from some verdant ridge and uh, a little anthropomorphic apple with a happy face comes scampering up to the helicopter and just says, Wait for me! 
And <laughs> I just thought it was the funniest goddamn thing I've ever seen. That's pretty fucking good. <clears throat> and uh, it continues along these lines. Um, as to what it is meant to mean, I have no idea, but it's extraordinarily disrespectful. <laughs> <laughs> well, Karate, Karate comes from a military family. Yeah. So that's can right. Get away with that shit. But yeah, good. Check those out when they pop up on Netflix. <laughs> the the wavelength shorts program, a uh, very one of always in my uh, Netflix top ten most watched for your area. So a film that was at Locarno, Nicholas Rapold, who sadly could not be here tonight, did a wonderful interview with the director of this film. It's called Cocote. It is from the Dominican Republic, and it is about. This man who, he's a gardener in the capital, and he is summoned back home because his father has been murdered. And he's converted to evangelical Christianity, but his family is very entrenched in traditional syncretic religious practices, which incorporate, you know, it's referred to as witchcraft in the film, but it incorporates elements of, like, um, traditional African religions, and then also they refer to God in a sort of a Christian sense. It's a really beautiful film. And I think the way it's made mimics the syncretic nature of the religious rites that it's depicting. It embraces the messiness when it makes sense. Um, and at other times it is so elegantly executed. He really captures something unique and beautiful. And just the way that he shoots his subjects who are uh, the exception of like two scenes, um, all of African descent, I think is just like wonderful and just like a nice corrective to um, the hundred or so years where uh, nobody knew how to light black people. Thank you all for coming. Can you believe that TIFF only happens once a year? I don't think my heart could take it if it was more than once. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. The Film Comet Podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android and iOS, at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.